The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. You go and check me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to another enthralling episode of The Stages Podcast. My guest today is theatre producer Christine Dunstan. In 1993, Christine founded Christine Dunstan Productions, a small independent theatre production house specialising in producing boutique theatre of the highest quality and specifically made to tour extensively. Her productions have been seen in literally hundreds of regional centres throughout Australia, as well as in every capital city. In a career spanning over 50 years, she commenced her tremendous contribution to live performance as a stage manager, going on to manage arts venues and advise and mentor a vast number of organisations. She has a wealth of experience to share and I can't wait to begin. Here's Stage's conversation with Christine Dunstan. Um, so, hello, Christine. Hello, Christine. Yeah, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> hello, Peter. Uh, ever thought of being a performer? Never. No? No. What, what, what um, enthuse you then about behind the scenes? Is this the interview now? Oh, I think we can start. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm a good organiser, and yeah. that's what enthuses me. And I got into it accidentally, um, and it was the best accident I ever had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were organising people as a kid? Um, when I was at school, I failed everything. I was absolutely hopeless academically, and of course I was deaf. I wear two hearing aids and have done since I was 30. But I was diagnosed as deaf at about 13, but my father wasn't going to buy any hearing aids because girls didn't need to hear. And I was shocking at school. And eventually I had this absolutely enlightened headmistress who said, um, you know, academia is not the be-all and end-all. It's all right if you're not academic, as long as you find something you want to do and you're good at, and so long as you respect people and are nice to them. She said, we don't have a drama club at this school, would you like to start one? So I became the founding president, secretary and treasurer of the Winona Drama Club. And I organised people from then on. I was supposed I was a born stage manager, you see. And, uh, and bitten by the bug. And bitten by the bug, absolutely. Bug. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so when did the, the hearing impairment start to um, show itself? I don't remember. I just right. know that I... I mean, my parents must have recognised that I was 
uh, not hearing terribly clearly because they took me to the Commonwealth Acoustic Laboratory as it was then in North Sydney. And I remember the nurse coming out, she yelled at everyone because they were all deaf in the way, Mr. Fucker! <laughs> and it, this very tall German man sort of said, Fuka! Um, and uh, so, I mean, that was in the 60s and that was a word you never ever heard in the 60s. Mm. So I thought it was marvellous. <laughs> Now, Christina, I, I found a quote that, um, that, that is addressed to you. Where, um, we stand on the shoulders of those that came before. Probably a few people have said that, but, but um, you certainly claim it. Who were the arts pioneers who have inspired and, and motivated you through your career? Without doubt, Sue Natras, who, yeah. who, who we lost recently. We lost recently, yeah. a tragic loss. Um, Sue was a huge inspiration to me. She was such a, she was such a, she was such a generous mentor. Without, there was no formal mentoring, but Sue was always happy to impart her wisdom. Uh, Wendy Blacklock, uh, I've also found a great mentor, particularly when Wendy was a producer with, you know, she started performing lines. And, you know, if I sort of snuck a, struck a snag, I'd ring Wendy and I'd say, how would you handle this? Um, and there was an ext- a great performer who influenced me in my 60s at The Independent called Bunny Brook. I don't know if you remember Bunny Brook. Flo Patterson on number 96. Oh, of course, yes, yeah. of course. Well, yeah. she had studied... And casting at, at Crawford's, didn't she? The casting director Oh, did she? I did not know that. Yeah. But she uh, had trained with Jacques Lecoq in, in uh, Paris and she had developed this clown called Trumbo and Trumbo didn't speak. And so Bunny taught me the absolute power of music and of mime and of speaking without saying a word. And uh, and she was it was and I worked with her a lot. She sort of took me under her wing and developed my stage management skills and and I helped her produce produce shows in the Paddington Church Hall and stuff. And so that was that was an influence for me. You're one of Australia's most experienced theatre producers. Do you keep track of the amount of product that you have produced over your? several decade career? Well, I'm not one. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an experienced theatre producer, but there are many others in Australia who are more experienced than I. I've really only been producing since 1993. Uh, and at my age, it seems like yesterday. Um, but I have worked with... I, I mean, so I started in 1966. So I'd done 30 years before I became a producer. In stage management? In stage management and then production management and then um, uh, general management. I did direct for a little while, but I wasn't good at directing. I don't like doing things I'm not good at. So I got rid of that. What were you directing? You For companies? or? No, well, I started what, what a little that? kids' company in um, in uh, Canberra called Alpha Theatre. And I had little, um, little bumper stickers made saying, if you can't Alpha Beta, if you can't Beta, join her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I and I directed a number of, of shows there for them. Um, but th- that was with kids. And, and adults, and then I directed You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown at the Canberra Theatre, which I bought the rights from Harry Miller. He took 23% royalty, which uh, seemed like a lot in those days. It's it now seems extortionate, <laughs> but I was so inexperienced. I thought, oh, well, that must be the go, you know. Yeah. Harry thought he was being terribly decent. Uh, well, he told me he was being terribly decent. I don't think he thought that for a minute. Um, <laughs> and then I had a couple of goes at directing stuff out at Marion Street, but um, it was not... I'm not good at it. I'm not good at, at script analysis. I love to hear a director 
talk about his or her vision for a piece. And I've read the play and I know it intimately. And I think, oh my God, that is just brilliant. I would never have thought of that. And that, of course, is what directing is all about. You've produced a lot of um, Australian fare, haven't you? Mm, I have, yeah. Homegrown works. Yeah. That yeah. obviously is something you consider very important. I think it's very important, absolutely, yes. I mean, I haven't done exclusively Australian, but, gee, I've almost... You'd be, I couldn't count on one hand the stuff I've done that isn't Australian, actually, now yeah. that I think about it. But we have you to thank for a whole lot of, of wonderful experiences in the theatre, you know, just personally. Um, that Lyrebird, The Towers of Helpman, that Tyler Coppin created, mm. was, was an extraordinary piece of mm. theatre. Beautiful piece of theatre, wasn't it? Yeah, we yeah. have Tyler to thank for that, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, Peter, because I think that, I think that because Tyler is a Canadian, his, he didn't meet Robert Helpman until he... Well, he didn't meet Robert Helpman ever, but he hadn't wasn't aware of Robert Helpman until he came to Australia. And so his perspective of Helpman is quite different than those of us who are Australian and were aware of him when he was with the Australian Ballet, when he was with the Adelaide Festival and, you know, the outrageous Helpman. Um, so I think, I, think, I think Tyler got a whole new perspective on Helpman that maybe an Australian might not have, and I think that's what made Lyrebird so special. And what a performance. I mean, boy... What a performance he gave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and serving a really important role in, in teaching us about our elders uh, in this industry. Um, Helpman was extraordinary, wasn't he? As Absolutely. A, he worked in all disciplines. Absolutely. Uh, ballet, opera, extraordinary theater, man. film. Extraordinary man. Yeah. 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 And, and really under-acknowledged, I think. Except he became a knight, I suppose. That's acknowledgement, isn't it? <laughs> I think that, that, that does it. Um, and something about like six dance lessons in six weeks. Now, that started at the ensemble, yep. didn't it? Yep. But were you involved at the Well, the that, was a, that was an ensemble production. Yes, you see, I can't take... Think? There's so much I've done, I can't take the credit for it But you've picked something up and toured it. Yes. I, so I picked it up and I toured it. Oh, it was a huge tour around Australia. It won a Helpman for its mm. tour. So that was wonderful. But you see, that was a marvellous piece of theatre too. Nancy yeah. Hayes, Todd McKenney, yeah. directed by Sandra Bates. And it was, uh, it was a, beautiful, a beautiful show and, and regional Australia absolutely adored it. Yeah. And we took it to capital cities as well. What do you look for in a product? If, if, something has to appeal to, obviously, um, in, a, in a fiscal way, um, but also in a, an artistic way. Well, the, I've never been very good at, at something appealing to me in the fiscal way. Uh, which is why I live in the country. Uh, but um, it, it actually has to appeal to me emotionally. That's what, that's what has... It's just got to grab me and, and right in my gut and say this is, this is something that is important for others to see and experience. If I can make it work fiscally, that's fantastic. But it's never, ever the, pr the prerogative for me. Yeah. What is the uh, Australian Performing Arts Centres Association? It's an association of it's the it's the the head group of uh, well it was performing arts centres all around Australia became members of what was then APACA Australian Performing Arts Centres Association and so it became the sort of lobbying body for government for funding for regional arts centres regional touring anything that an arts centre needs it's now become. PAX Australia, I think, PAC Australia, Performing Arts Centres Australia, and there are now uh, producers who are members of it as well. So it's, it's producers uh, cor conversing directly with art centres, which is important with the art centres managers. It's an organisation you're, you're still involved in? No. No? no. no. But you were for a while. I was for a, a 
some years, yes. Yeah. I was the executive director of it for some years. Yeah. It was a little sideline job. Right. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how organisations <laughs> seem to change their names quite oh. regularly. It's oh. hard to keep up with um, who... who yeah. Who people are. Mine remains are consistent, you know. You are. <laughs> but but knowing knowing the market out there in the regions uh, is obviously very important to you as a producer too. Well, I lived for three and a half years in Alice Springs, and I ran the art centre up there in the early nineties, and uh, and it was because by then I had worked in the business for many years in in Sydney and Melbourne, and I had I had strong contacts, and uh, so I got a lot of shows up to Alice Springs that didn't go anywhere else. They came from Sydney or Melbourne up to Alice or Adelaide, up to Alice, did a show or two there and went back again. And so I thought, this is just crazy. And, and I mean, I love drama. That is my great love is drama because I think it can be so potent and, and so influential on lives. And um, so I sort of started to talk to other art centres up there. We were a member of APACA. And, uh, you know, they get music shows and they get... Um, tribute shows to death the tribute shows are still touring around Australia um, but there was not a lot of drama and so um, I I guess I, I had a hand in the touring model of getting of getting real real stage shows from main stages out into regional Australia rather than than smaller shows being developed just for touring mm. because the scale's not there and the and you know you can't have that scale if you if you're developing something to go out to a half a dozen little venues, to get the scale you actually have to have some sort of main stage season or some sort of um, wherewithal that that the thing is developed properly before it goes out on the road. Yeah, I think that's important. And of course, there's a very hungry market out there, isn't there? The audiences who who don't have access to. Um the theatre that we do in, in, in the city. Yeah, it should be a hungrier market. I mean, we, you really? know, I, I keep throwing, throwing food at them. Look, it's it's uh, it's been a very, very difficult time. It is a hungry market, Peter, but uh, regional Australia has suffered so much in the last few years mm. with drought mm. and then the floods and the fires. And uh, people, I think, would love to go to the theatre, but they can't afford to. They have to decide what they're going to do with their money, yeah. and that's probably buy more seed to plant the crops that either didn't grow for the drought or got washed away with the floods, or burnt away with yeah. the fires. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a it's been a particularly tough market for the last ten years out in regional Australia. Um, a lot of the most of the venues out there are are uh, run by councils, owned and operated by council. Um, which means that most of them are allowed to run at a certain loss. So council will underwrite to a certain dollar amount each year. Um, and that's if it weren't for that, then they would not exist. Yeah. Because, you know, the arts is not a way to make money. Uh, various uh, forms of technology has, have obviously developed and advanced over the decades that, that, that you've been working Absolutely. What What are those, <laughs> those key advancements that you've seen which have really... Um, gone on to assist you in, in your role? Well, I think computers is the obvious one, but yeah. you know, when I started in 66 at the Independent, we had a a, a dimmer board, which which had a loading of, each dimmer had a loading of, of 1,000 watts. So if you wanted a 500 watt light special to come up, you had to plug a 500 watt radiator into the, into the same dimmer so that it, so the load would would still so you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you practically in your swimsuit or you should have been I mean it was and 
and we had we had records. Sound effects were all recorded onto an acetate disc that were that were um, recorded down at a place called Radio House, five hundred George Street, Sydney, which is where um, the the Four Seasons Hotel now is. And you'd go in there, and they had the BBC sound effects library, and you took your your own music in if you wanted on records, and you, and it would be on a on an acetate disc. We had headsets that were that were old army issue. We bought from the from the those stores, the army surplus Disposal stores. stores yeah. uh, so your ears would be very you'd be very hot from the radiators. Your ears would be as sore as anything, and you'd 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 cue up the thing, the record. You'd have your finger on it until the cue came. You'd lift your finger and the record would go round. It's changed a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit, my goodness. Yeah, goodness. yeah. Uh, you a fan of the fax? Oh, my God, I had one of the first fax machines in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, and that's because I was working with Kevin Jacobson in the, when fax machines came in. I mean, my company had a lot of, did a lot of work for Kevin. And, um, and one of the things we were doing was um, AIDA, which uh, the big spectacular at the Sydney Football Ground. And it was produced by a, a company in Canada. And uh, I thought, oh, this would be great. I'll be able to, I won't have to get up at three o'clock in the morning anymore because nobody had telex machines in Australia by then. Uh, we were one of the first people, to, first countries to, to embrace fax machines. And instead of getting up at three o'clock in the morning to talk to Canada, I thought, oh, I can send a fax. And then, but of course, Canada didn't have fax machines. <laughs> so, so I was faxing myself a lot. But um, uh, yeah, a fax machine's changed a lot and then of course the computer came in You'd, uh, well and, and quite bulky at first but now you Huge. can just sort of shove been, your computer I had a big road case built on right. on casters to tour the computer wow mm. and mobile phones of course I, I guess they have made um, it much more um, the immediacy to, to contact oh, actors so or old. agents or <laughs> so old <laughs> it's important that the we first, the first um, mobile well John Scandrett who's a great sound designer uh, he had the first mobile phone I ever saw, and that was in a rather large briefcase. Um, and then the first one I got was the size of a brick, and it sort of it was too big to, to you know, the boys would hang it on their on their pock on their uh, waistband of their jeans. I didn't. I thought that was a bit unladylike, so I just carried mine with me. But it was huge. It was the size of a brick and the weight of a brick. But yeah, it was. Uh, you could ring people. I mean, it's just changed. Everything's changed. I mean, the immediacy of everything has changed, and the technology is everything's changed. And now, you when you tour, you, all you have to take is a little Mac with you, and you've got QLab, and it runs the projection and the lighting and the sound, and just runs the whole lot. Yes, I can't imagine a time with you know relying on snail mail to uh, for communications yeah. to yeah. to the various um, yeah. stakeholders. Yeah, uh, Poor old snail's nearly out of a job, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, growing up in Sydney, born in Sydney, born in Sydney. Was it lived in Sydney till I was seven, then we moved, family moved to Melbourne. And uh, when I was 13, we moved back to Sydney. So I've got a foot in each camp. All of my family, both parents are, Mel- are Melburnians. Right. So I'm the only sort of Sydney Dunstan. Right. But um, I think, so I feel, I feel, do feel as if I have a foot in each camp actually, right. but I'm, I have spent a lot more time in Sydney than anywhere else. Were there any theatricals in the, ha- in the uh, family? Absolutely not. Right. And when I went home at the age of 16, having been to the dentist, as another story, and said, I've got a job in the theatre, at the independent theatre. My father said, not under my roof. So I left home that day, and I, I was paid $15 a week, and I got a flat for $12 a week. So I know, I know how Anthony Albanese feels. You know, he says that you never forget being poor, and I was poor for a number of years. Yeah. 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 
just um, uh, that enforced independence where you had to... Forced independence to go to the independent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, did that cause any sort of rift with, with your dad? Or? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, we didn't speak. He didn't speak to me for a number of years. But eventually we reconciled when yeah. he when he realised that this was not just a passing fad, this was something I was actually going to spend the rest of my life doing, um, and with some success. So, it, yes, but my mother used to used to sort of uh, smuggle in little food pa- packages to me and say, don't tell your father. She'd bring them into the independent. But it was even more outrageous because I was share. I got a, I got a flat at North Sydney by myself first. Then I, got, I moved to a house, a share house in McMahon's Point, which was very glamorous. And there were three of us, and the other two were uh, two boys who were partners. Well, of course, that was just... There was no way that, you know, we could have told my father that, that I was living with two homosexuals. <laughs> <laughs> as Doris Fitton called them. <laughs> homosexuals? Homosexuals. <laughs> I, I think it. sexual was too hard for her to yeah, say. Too hard to say, yeah. too hard to say. So, um, other than the drama club at school, which obviously seduced you to a life in the theatre... What were the other um, artistic pursuits that you were exposed to? The, the visual arts, the cinema, um, were you taken to the theatre? No. no. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Interesting question, no. None of those things. My mother loved music and she knew a lot about classical music. There was always music playing in the house and I learned to identify you know, the, the, the composers of. I could recognise a, a Mozart from a Beethoven from a Mendelssohn. Um, but no, we didn't, there were no artists, we didn't go to galleries or, we didn't go out really. I mean, it was a strange, it was a, it was a difficult upbringing, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there are many who have had much more difficult upbringings than I've had. Yeah. All families are, are dysfunctional to a degree, aren't Indeed. they? Indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, leaving home, the security of home at 16, um, walking straight into a job as an assistant stage manager at The Independent, earning $15 a week. I believe. Yeah, that's right. Did that go very far in... in well, uh, my rent was $12. Yeah. So with the $3, Doris Fitton, who, of course, uh, uh, ran the independent theatre, uh, she lived just around the corner in Ridge Street, and she would feed us, that is the crew, there were three, <laughs> three of us, uh, she would feed us every Saturday night between the matinee and the evening show. We'd get a roast. It was like a big meal. So that was my meal of the week. You could buy chicken and chips for 55 cents. So, you know, the $3 got me through, but, you know, I didn't, I didn't eat a lot. I was thin in those days. <laughs> uh, I've been making up for it ever since. John Whittam gave you oh, that job. John Whittam gave me that job. So I'd been at the dentist. At, at, uh, he'd, been in the, he'd been in the army with my father, and uh, so his hand shook a bit, so he always drilled the sort of soft palate and the gums, which unintentionally so it was always a long trip to the dentist while he stemmed the hemorrhage and uh, I was at business college so I um as I'd left school and I'd gone to I was sent off to business college and the dentist said how are you enjoying business college I said I absolutely hate it I'd like to go into the theatre and he said oh my wife's in the waiting room um he, he said she's she's going to her job and she could probably drive you home it's not far from where you live it's um uh she's going to the independent theatre and that was Joan Winchester wow so Jane Winchester was then the publicist at the um, at the Independent, married to Mac Winchester, our dentist. So Joan said, would you like a tour of the theatre before I drop you home? And I said, yes, I'd love that. So she took me in, she introduced me to John, 
And she said, oh, Christine, I'd like to work here, I think, wouldn't you? And John said, could you start tomorrow? Can you sweep the stage? Can you iron the costumes? And that's literally how it happened. Wow. And he said, I've only got $15. I said, I'll take it. So um, I, I was terribly lucky and I learned, I learned all the basic skills of the craft of stage management mm. at the independent. An apprenticeship and from John. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. It was just, it was the most fantastic four years. Yeah. yeah. There you go, all you youngins listening to this. Don't be afraid of the dentist again. <laughs> <laughs> you never know where it might lead you. Just take the gauze to yeah. stem the hemorrhage. <laughs> so who were the actors that were working at the Independent at this time? So when I joined the Independent, there was a company called the uh, Continental Repertory Company. And, and they would do, I think, four plays a week over six nights. There was Ruth Cracknell, Jim Condon, Alex Hay... Brian James, uh, Ross Thompson, um, uh, Carmen Duncan, uh, you know, are just extraordinary, Extra Joan Hattie, extraordinary names that were that were there, and they were all just such professional. Oh, Ron Hedrick, yeah, just such professional actors who were so kind and gentle, and not a not an ego amongst them. Not certainly not that I saw. And they were embracing of everyone and each other. It was just, it was magic, absolute magic. Mm-hmm. It's true, isn't it, though, about that's about theatre? You know, we are one big family. It's, it's a, a oh, very absolutely. precious I found, community. I found my family when I went into the theatre, absolutely, yeah. and it's still my family. Yeah. Mm. What was Doris Fitton like? Oh, she was, um, she was a curious woman, you know. She was, now remember, I was very young when I was working with Doris, and I would love to sit down and have a conversation with Doris now. But she was very, very good to me, very supportive of me. She had a very deep voice and said, John, because John would do everything. She was a uh, she was married to Tug Mason, who was a solicitor. And I think Tug, I assume that Tug did most of the business for her for the independent, because I don't think Doris really had a business head. But she was pretty well connected. You know, she'd worked with, uh, she'd worked with the John Alden Shakespeare Company. She'd worked with the, uh, uh, Lawrence Olivia and Vivian Lee when they came out to Australia. She was a member of the company of the Twelfth Night that they were touring. But she, um, and she loved the theatre, she loved the independent theatre. But she was a curious director and I do remember when I was a youngster we were doing um, Edward Albee's A Delicate Balance which Doris was um, directing and it was always easier for Doris if it was the Samuel French version because that had the stage directions in it so that made it easier for her but I do remember on the first day and Doris didn't believe in readings that was just a waste of time so day one of rehearsal we would block act one day two we would block act two and from day three we'd just run it for the rest of the rehearsal period which was usually two or three weeks and then we'd open it and that'd be it there were no technical rehearsals or anything we'd do a couple of dress rehearsals anyway Doris came in on the um, first day of rehearsal and she said and looking at the look, looking at the Samuel French Alex, right? You enter upstage, upstage prompt. Ruth, you're sitting there now. Alex, I think uh, it indicates that you've been away for a while, so you come in and uh, and you kiss Ruth. <laughs> and he said, No, Doris, I can't do that. Said, what do you mean I can't do it? I've just said to walk over here and you kiss Ruth. And he said, But Doris, it comes out in the second act that I that we've had no physical contact whatsoever for you. So I haven't read the second act yet. That's tomorrow. <laughs> So that's that's the sort of director Doris Fitton was. She was like that. And she did The Staircase yeah. with uh, Alex Hay and Brian James, who were a pair of camp hairdressers yeah. living Two together. Homocenials. Well, that's why that's where it yeah. came up. She didn't even know. Right. 
that they were. And because and they used to talk about getting in the bath together, rub-a-dub-dub, three men and two men in a tub. And Doris would say, well, we, we must have been saving water. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex couldn't help himself. He said, Doris, these men are together. They're homosexuals. Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. That was never <laughs> was never mentioned again. That's a pair of pair of very good friends. <laughs> That's what she was like. She was extraordinary. And there was I could go on forever with the Doris Fitton stories. There was I'll tell you one more. Yeah. Uh, uh, the anniversary with Rosemary Butcher and and uh, Ross Thompson, and the set opened. It opened with him walking on stage and opening the curtains to a little balcony, and the psych beautifully lit as sunrise, um, and. But Doris used to cut, do a round of the theatre before every performance, without without hesitation, without without exception. She would go into each dressing room at, between the half hour call and curtain up. To, good luck for tonight. Good luck for tonight. Good luck for tonight to everyone. And we missed her this night, and which is not a worry because sometimes she did have other things. But <laughs> Ross opened the curtains. The house lights went down. The curtain went up. The stage lights came up. Ross opened the curtains. And there's Doris on the balcony. Oh, Miss terribly sorry. Have a good performance. <laughs> and off she went. So, you know, that was Doris Fitton. Extraordinary woman. What a and fabulous woman. And took huge risks, you know, with the independent. Mm. I mean, it was her money. Mm. And and uh, she sometimes did very well and sometimes didn't. She had, of course, the, the school of independent... Independent school of dramatic art. It's more traumatic art, really. But, um, so I think that was the sort of commercial arm. Of the and it was had a lot of a lot of students gave Hayes Gordon a bit of a run for his money down at the ensemble which she liked of course liked to give him a run for his money um, so uh, but you know she and she did rusty bugles against against all odds and the, the the vice squad came in and closed it down of course it was fabulous publicity yeah. and really paid off so you can't but admire Doris even though she was a shocking director. <laughs> <laughs> but a great character, yeah. great character. So from the Independent, you go to the Canberra Repertory Society. Gosh. And then yeah. to the Melbourne Theatre Company. Yes. Um, as the first ever female stage manager, yes. working under John Sumner. Yes. Um, also known as uh, Blackjack. That's right. Yes. Yes. What was exactly. John Sumner like? Uh, again, uh, he was very English, very British, very proper, and very. Uh, he was he was very good to me. He, you know, he he was he was fantastic to me. Because I think he was aware that that uh, I was well. Of course, he was aware that I was the first stage manager. But I think it was first female stage manager. But I think it was a. Um, I think John did that purposely. He wanted a woman in there, so that was before his time, really, in many ways. But um, he was he was very good to me. He was a, an interesting director. You also proved that you could do the job, though. That I you must have, have done, mustn't I? You obviously impressed at. Um, was it the interview or? Audition. No, I, no? Just, no. They heard you were good and said you want a yeah, job. I think right. they must have, yes. I, I've done very few interviews, so I've been blessed, absolutely blessed with luck. Um, and I really, really haven't done very many interviews. I don't think I'm very good at them. I don't think I would be. Right. Were you welcomed by the other, the male staff that you had to um, oh, yeah, absolutely. organise? Yeah, yeah. I've never, felt any, I've never felt any discrimination, right. either, for, either for my sex or my sexual preference. I've never felt any discrimination in this business at all. Right. And that's why it's a great business. That's why it's a great business. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Are you yeah. a bossy person? Yes. Yeah. Very. I'm the bossiest people. person you've ever met, Peter. <laughs> what are the, what are the uh, essential traits for a, an effective stage manager then? Um, I think uh, you you have to be very organized. You have to be firm. You have to be a good leader. But you don't have to be bossy. I just happen to be bossy. Um, 
and um, and I think you have to really think on your feet. You've got to be a really quick thinker. Just as well I don't stage manage anymore because half my brain's gone. But um, you've got yeah you've got I mean because if something goes wrong it's the, it, during performance it is the stage manager who makes the decision of what do we do do we go on do we stop do we pull the curtain do we send another actor on do we just skip that scene and go forward eleven lighting cues mm. you know and that all you've got to make all those decisions at once. So nurses make particularly good stage managers I've learned over the years. Yeah. Many producers have started their life as stage managers. Yes. In Australia, you just think of John Frost and uh, John Robertson. Yes. Obviously, Soon actress. <laughs> yeah, of course, of mm. course. Mm. Obviously, the role gives you terrific insight into all the perspectives of the business and, and of a show. Well, I think that's true. I think, with the, with the only exception, I, I think of marketing and publicity, which the stage manager's only introduction to is... is organising the, the media calls. Or, or, but, um, you know, as a stage manager, you actually work across all of the departments. You're liaising, in a way, with all of the departments through the production manager. But, but in, in our day, in the, in the days of, of Natris and, and Robinson and, and, uh, and Frost and myself, uh, and we're all contemporaries, um, there weren't production managers. We just sort of... We just did it, really, with set builders and... So you, so we had to learn. We had to, we had to liaise across. And I guess you ran understudy rehearsals also. Oh, we've you? never had understudies. Oh, yeah. I've never, I have never worked with understudies. Not in, not in theatre. Right. Musicals, of course, they yeah, do. Yeah. But uh, although the musicals, I did, and I stopped doing music. I stopped when I say I did. I production managed uh, all the big ones of the eighties before Cameron came in. So I did Forty Second Street and Anything Goes and um, a lot of those big musicals. We didn't even have understudies then. Sometimes, had, sometimes after it opened, you might work a couple of the existing cast in as swings, but uh, and nobody went off either in those days. You just didn't go off. You didn't say, "Oh, my brother's getting married on Saturday. I won't be in." That doesn't happen. That didn't happen in our day. No, no. It I was mean, a it went on. There was, it? was if you were sick, there was a bucket in the wings to vomit into and go back on stage, literally. <laughs> So lovely. Very, it's a very glamorous business, Peter. Yeah, hi-ho, the glamorous life. Yeah. Um, other female first, uh, you were stage director at Sydney's Marion Street Theatre mm-hmm. and, of course, the production manager at Nimrod Theatre and Sydney Theatre Company, where you worked on Chicago, that, um, yes. that, that seminal production. My first production at Sydney Theatre Company was Chicago. Right. Fabulous, fabulous production, wasn't it? Yeah. Richard Warrett, Ross, T- Ross Coleman and Brian Thompson and, and Roger Kirk. What a team. All Australian creative team. All Australian yeah. creative team. And it was just, it was a seminal production. It was absolutely fantastic production. Yeah. yeah. And uh, quite an extensive run also. Um, oh, several extensive seasons. runs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it opened at the Drama Theatre, it transferred to the Royal, it went to Adelaide, it went to Melbourne, it came back to the Royal, it went to Hong Kong. Did it do three shows? It did, did a lot. It was, it was huge. Made a lot of money too for the company, which mm. is good. What's the, the, the toughest thing about running a show? As, as, a, as a stage manager or... Yeah, we'll continue that vein. We're simply talking about stage management now. Um, I think it's about keeping... It's, it's The toughest thing, I think, is just um, nurturing under all conditions and, and all, all people and all temperaments because you have to maintain a happy and an even company. And without that, the performance is in danger. 
And I think that is the, that's largely a stage manager's job. And that's a really tough one. But um, it, it's, it's, it's only a tough one if there are difficult members of the company. And that's not just the performers. Sometimes there are difficult backstage people too, you know, or front of house people who might be involved, like you know, producers or whatever. But uh, so that's that's pretty tough. Technical rehearsals are always difficult. They're always a nightmare. Every stage manager's nightmare is the tech week uh, because it's that's entirely on the stage manager then because that's when you do what's called top and tail. You don't run through the play. The actors are on stage in costume with lights going over and over and over the same lines again until you get the lighting cue right or you get the sound cue right or you get whatever's happening, the fly cue, whatever's happening. And it's very difficult for actors, but I do think it's more difficult for the stage manager because everybody's yelling at the stage manager at once to slow that down, make that faster, come in here, go there. You know, it's tough, but um, gosh, it's a rewarding job though. Yeah, but it's a, lo- it's a lo- long, uh, long journey also because you're in the production process from day one, really, aren't you? Involved you're in the in rehearsal process from day one. Auditions? Stage managers are generally not don't come in until in my in my field, which yeah. is the theatre, as opposed to musical theatre. Um, the stage manager generally doesn't come in until a few days before rehearsal starts, um, but um, and then they're there. Then they're there the whole time. But it's the production manager who's who's there from the word go. Who's with the design with whom the designer is working must work with the production manager during that design process to ensure that the set will fit on the stage yeah, and yeah. come within budget. And especially if you're touring, that it That's will right. fit, every fit every venue stage. that you go to. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1975, you uh, were awarded an International Theatre Institute scholarship to observe staging techniques in Europe and North America. Where, where did you go and what did you see? Oh, that was That was amazing. I went to America first. I went to... So I didn't go to see shows. I went to work with people backstage and to see how, how literally in staging techniques, to see how things happened elsewhere, thinking Australia was a long way behind us. And in some ways it was, but in many ways it wasn't. Technically, we were a long way behind. Um, but I worked in, um, in LA, in San Francisco, in Chicago, and then I went into Canada. I went with the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford, Ontario. Uh, then I went to London, and it was this was just an absolute quirk of timing. I was with the um, uh, RSC when they moved from from the Aldwych to the uh, to the Barbican. No, I wasn't. That's not true. I was with uh, must have been the National Theatre with their move to Southbank. What year was that? See, my brain's gone. But it was one of those big it was one of those big companies moves. Oh, that's seventy five. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I and I worked with the RSC up at Stratford as well, so it was sort of pretty amazing. And then I, I also had I was I was due to go into um, into La Scala, and so I went over to La Scala, and the doors were locked with a big sign saying we're on vacation. So they'd forgotten about me. So I had a nice little holiday, <laughs> nice little holiday instead. But when I came back, and I had to write a report for the ITI, the International Theatre Institute, and um, and it was it was it was really interesting because a lot of what I'd learned was. I think I personally learned a lot about how to treat people, how to deal with people of different cultures and also and different languages, um, but how um, how we could adjust our techniques here to come up to the standards of of uh, Europe. And uh, but of course I couldn't get a job. I went went for the. Um, uh, there was an assumption by not just myself but others that I would get a job at the old tote. 
as a stage manager. Ken Southgate, who was then the general manager, um, uh, said, I know he couldn't possibly employ me, I'm overqualified. I think I was 24 years old or something. So I couldn't get a job being overqualified. So that's when you start your own business. Nobody else will employ you, you start your own business. The stage right group of companies. Well, it was, it was, it was ineffectively called uh, Christine Dunstan Staging Consultants right. in those days. Right. But uh, yes, it, it sort of morphed into stage right group of companies, yeah. So this was the first time in Australia that there was a group that was overseeing all of the elements of production and, and, and so, building and construction. So the first company I started, Staging Consultants, started as, a, as an agency for uh, people who had never before been represented. So an agency for lighting designers, set designers, um, production managers, stage managers, etc. And then very quickly, like within weeks really, um, people would come in, uh, like the first clients I had, the first with a big job were, were Hilary Lindstedt and Liz Mulliner, who then had M&L, and they were producing a play written by Ron Blair, starring John Bell, uh, called Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know. And it was a, um, it was a, a, a play about Lord Byron, and it was going to go to the Adelaide Festival, and it was going to tour into Queensland. So they got in touch with me to find a production manager for it. So I put my hand up and said, oh, that sounds like me. <laughs> so of course I'd give myself all the good jobs. So that's when that sort of then morphed into set construction, costume manufacture, uh, props manufacture, and, and, and then we worked with, uh, we did a lot of, there was a lot of business, what was called business theatre around in those days. It was just the beginning of those big events that that commercial companies, photography companies, and you know, Kodak and and the banks and the insurance companies had just started to do all of their big corporate events, and they wanted a theatrical style. So we we were really busy through the eighties doing all of that stuff, and the eighties also gave us Expo in in um, Queensland. It gave us Expo through Kevin Jacobson again. We did Expo in uh, Japan, and. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, the Halcyon 80s were an absolute great time. You, you said you worked on 42nd Street as a production manager. So would someone like Helen Montague, who produced that show, go to you and... Um... Well, the 42nd Street story is an interesting one. That came... Um, Helen was producing it on behalf of David Merrick, who owned it, of course, and had developed it, known as uh, the... Um, abominable the showman. abominable the abominable showman <laughs> and he had had a stroke and so Helen was producing on his behalf came out to Australia and wanted we, we were going to, he wanted to open 42nd Street in Australia before it went to London because he wanted to just make sure it was not just a Broadway show um, and so we sort of set it up a bit here and we had auditions here at the match and and Merrick came out for the auditions and he sat in the back row and with a, with a rug over his, his uh, knee and a great, his great big moustache. And his reaction would be, Get him off! Get him off! If he didn't like them, Yeah, more! More! If he liked them, you know, right. it was, was pretty gross. Yeah. Anyway, um, he decided he would open it in Australia and, he, and yes, he could find the cast. And um, we put the crew together, but we couldn't get the theatre. There was a, the Sydney Dance Company had the booking at the Madge and they wouldn't relinquish 
they wouldn't relinquish the booking. Uh, they had a two-week booking and it stuffed the whole thing up because it meant that 42nd Street could only have run for three months and then we would have had to close for the Sydney dance. Anyway, so it didn't happen. So Merrick, however, had taken a liking to me. So he insisted that I go to London and do it there and then we could come back to Australia. So we flew to London and um, I didn't ever get out of Immigration Hall because I didn't have a work visa. So I wasn't allowed out. So I sat in Immigration Hall for 24 hours and then I was flown back to Australia. The good, the good part of that story is that the only seat they could get me was first class coming back to Australia <laughs> and I'd never flown first class so that was rather fun. Um, but uh, um, so then I did open it, then I did do it back, back here. It came in by which time Mr. Merrick had died. No, yes, he died. So Merrick had overlooked the work visa, or uh, Montague had overlooked the work right. visa. Okay. Right. Yes, I'm sure it was accidental, Peter. Yeah, yeah. but it was a first class mm. ride back to Australia. Mm. Um, well, Hayden Productions in Anything Goes. Mike um, Walsh. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you you built that or a production? Yeah, yeah, we built it. Yes, yes, we did it all. Yeah, we did it all. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's a like Forty Second Street. It's a, uh, a, a one of a better term, an import from Broadway. Um, yes. So the designs are there. Yes, the, that's the, right. Yeah. But you have to have them built here. Yeah. 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 And Mike did quite a lot of shows. Uh, he did. Um, Best uh, Little Whorehouse. Best Little Whorehouse. That's right. And he did that one with. Um, uh, see, I I can't remember what he did. I should have bought my CV, shouldn't I? Nonsense with all the nuns. I didn't do nonsense, no. but um, Mike did a lot of shows. Gary Penny did a lot of shows at the Opera House in those days too. Yeah. I did all of his shows. Yeah, yeah. There's a name from the past. What's yeah. is Gary Penny still? He's still with us. He's right. not not terribly well, right. but he is still with us. Yes. Malcolm Cook. Malcolm Cook. That's right. Another one. All yep. those. Yep. Ken Brodziak. Ken's no longer with us. No, no, not no. <laughs> but uh, all those yeah, yeah, wonderful names right. from the past who, that's who right. gave us great entertainment. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Mm. When did female producers start to... You would be one of the first also, would you? Well, we've just talked about Helen Montague, of course, who was a major commercial producer. Um, I think that, you know, when I started producing, and that was when I'd come back from Alice Springs, because I thought... I I just saw a a niche market, really, for, for regional Australia, for doing shows, and so I developed that, and that's when I started to produce. And my early days of producing were were really just picking up artists and putting shows together and getting them out on the road which was a, which was wonderful for them and it was great for the regional centres but I wanted to do plays I wanted to to a drama so that's when I started to to do that and um, and I guess I was the first and I was and I was a truly independent producer because there were no independent producers because they they you know they producers were were commercial producers and independent meant I put my money in, I didn't have any investors. So that's why I felt I was an independent producer. These days that term is anyone who is not connected to a theatre is an independent producer if they're not a commercial producer. You're either a commercial producer or an independent producer. But you know, I'm still one of the mugs that one of the very few mugs in this country who actually put their own money into a show. Uh, I never saw the producers, did I? Or I didn't take any notice of it. <laughs> <laughs> never put your own money into shows. <laughs> I think Chief Sitting Bull says that in uh, Annie Gitchikan as I'm well. I'm sure he does, yeah, yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah, very wise. <laughs> Barry Humphreys you worked with. Oh, yeah, that was a wonderful time, yes. So I went in with Barry as, as uh, stage director and pretty quickly became associate producer, which was wonderful. And... Um, uh, He's an extraordinary man to work with. He's a very generous man, and that mind—I love working with 
with brilliant people because you can just see their minds work. And Humphreys was absolutely remarkable about that. And, and he's, he's almost dual personality because there, be, there comes a time, sitting with Barry in the dressing room, as I did at interval, when he got out of Les Patterson or Sandy Stone, and became Dame Edna. There is a there is a moment in the dressing room where he becomes Dame Edna, yeah. even before he's got the dress on. There's just something. He even even without without his knowledge, he starts to speak Edna. That voice comes in, and the mannerisms come in, and it's. And I pointed that out to him, and he hadn't realised it, but it does. It doesn't even have to have the wig on. There's just you know the, there's this transition. From, from Barry to Edna. It's extraordinary. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to watch. And at the end of the evening too, I imagine there's some sort of, there's disrobing physically, of course, but um, uh, taking Edna off, so to speak. That's right. Yeah, That's before right. Before you can go home. Yes, yes. Although at the end of the evening there's... Yes, no, I think you're right. You, the, 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 the makeup comes off and then the voice goes back to Barry. Yeah. Mm, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and then he goes home. Because he doesn't have a drink, of course. He's, you know, he's, uh, he's complete teetotaler. So, but he's, you know, he's very generous. I mean, he would sit around and have a, we would have a drink, and he would have a, a sparkling water. Mm-hmm. But he's not a, he's, you know, he'd rather go home, of course. Well, there's a lot of uh, theatre workers also. You know, the, the show might finish at eleven o'clock or something, but um, you're still wired from having worked for the well, last of three hours. Of course, and and, you know, it. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone because people who work nine to five, at five o'clock, they then go home and watch telly and have dinner with their family or they go out to the pub with their with their workmates and they, they take some hours to wind down and it's the same for we theatre folk. We, I mean, you don't go home straight from a show and go to bed because yeah. you've, you've got to wind down after work. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and debrief with your colleagues. That's if, right. Uh, if need be. Yeah, That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. Touring stuff overseas, you know, I've gone to the Edinburgh festivals and the London festival and all that sort of thing. Is that difficult to um, to secure places in those festivals mm. and um, mm. take a lot of time? I imagine. It's, well, it's by invitation, really, right. to be to be successful. And the one time I've done it where I invited myself, it was far from successful. Um, and I, I mean, I've been to the Edinburgh Fringe twice, and the first time was with uh, Lyrebird, and it was by invitation. And it was a prestigious company presenting us, and we won the um, the Scotsman uh, the Fringe First Award, the Scotsman Fringe First, and it was a triumphant triumphant tour. And as a result of that, we were invited to the London Festival. I then, ten years later, in two thousand and nine, went to um, the Edinburgh Festival by by self invitation. I mean, I was included, and we were put in a good venue, but. And it was with Lottie's Gift, which was a beautiful piece of theatre with, with Karen Sharp, the world world guitarist. Uh, just beautiful, beautiful work. Um, and it was an absolute disaster because if you don't have that machine of the festival behind you, you just can't you just can't cut through. You know, the Edinburgh Fringe is like, look at the programme and it's like a, literally a thousand shows. Well, there's no way in the world you can choose which of those thousand shows, which six of those shows you're going to see in a week or which 13 you're going to see in a week, you just can't do it. So if you haven't got that marketing and publicity machine behind it, then it's, it's uh, you know, anyone's luck really, and it wasn't ours in 2009. It's very tricky. Are you good at delegation, or do you like to do everything yourself? Or oh, um, uh, I, look, I, 
I love to do everything myself, but I think I'm okay at delegation. Um, there are a lot of people who would probably say that they've learned a lot from me. Um, and I suppose you don't learn unless, you, unless you've been delegated a task. Yes. So I'm, I'm pretty good at delegation, but of course, the important thing that everybody should know is that I always know best. My way is always the best way. So, you know, I might delegate to you, but I might come along and criticise too, yeah, yeah, yeah. just because I like to. Yes. Mm. But you have a seniority too. You you are one of our elders in the I'm industry. Yes, I yes. certainly yes. am. How does that feel? <laughs> but you, you have accumulated decades mm. of experience mm. uh, in all sorts of roles. So it's, it's an I never ask anyone to do something I can't do myself yeah. because I've done everything. So it's a pretty safe thing to say, really. Yeah. Almost, there is almost nothing in this industry that I haven't done except perform. Yeah. What do you think of arts criticism? Um, are reviews important to uh, to the theatre? Yes, I think they are, and I mourn the fact that there are no uh, that, that we don't have the learned reviewers as we used to have. Again, when I started, we had we had Harry Kipax, who was a full time arts reviewer with the Herald. We had Norman Kessel, who was a full time arts reviewer with the Telegraph. We had um, uh, Taffy Davies with the Mirror. You know, we had Frank Harris with the sun, maybe it's the other way around, but uh, they were they were trained, rev- trained in theatre review. They uh, they were full time arts critics. They didn't they didn't report on the arts. They reviewed. Well, now there are no arts pages. There are very few arts pages left. There are very few arts editors left, um, and there are frankly very few learned critics. I think, yeah. and I think we're poorer for it. And certainly as a producer, uh, critics uh, reviews are very important to me because I like to use the quotes. That's how you, you know, to sell a show. Yeah. Those quotes are, are gold. There's right. <laughs> that story of the abominable showman again, David Merrick. You probably know one of his shows. He, he used all these quotes from famous Picking people up. that got out of the phone. He got out of the phone. That that's shared, true. shared the same name. That's true. Yeah. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Johnny, Johnny, Mickey Rooney. Right, can you say this? Can I quote you saying this? Yes, I know. It's extraordinary. <laughs> he did it. So there you go. Yeah. That's, that's something you could always try. Right, I suppose I could. Except we don't have the telephone. Oh, I've got it on the internet. That's right. <laughs> um, all those decades of work in theatres, um, theatres are a place which, which arouse superstitions sometimes. Were you ever superstitious in the theatre? I was never superstitious, but I've been in a couple of theatres that I swear are haunted. Yeah. Hmm. So you felt presence of oh absolutely of somebody. It was Ursula at the Independent, right. and uh, Ursula is reported to have hanged herself there at one point because it was never it wasn't always a theatre. It was built as a as Clay's Coliseum, uh, and then became a tram shed in the twenties. Um, but I think Ursula hanged herself there while it was Clay's Coliseum in the uh, in the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, but Ursula would play the piano. You would act, quite honestly quite often hear. Just the tinkle of notes up the back of the circle of the independent. We all knew about her. We'd feel her presence. I have no doubt. But there was a, there's a ghost, I think, at the at the um, Marion Street Theatre too, which of course was a soldiers' memorial hall. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and the Comedy Theatre in Melbourne has a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> you feel it, you but feel they're it. not spooky. No, no, no. That, Unless you're in the venue by yourself. That's a bit. I, I, and I've done that, but that's a bit spooky. But you know, the camaraderie of of others makes it quite fun. They obviously love hanging around theatres. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, an opening night routine, did, is there something that you practice every time you have an opening night? No. Trying not to 
My partner, Cherry, says I bruise her arm every opening night because I just grab it and squeeze it and hang on to it until the curtain falls. <laughs> she knows when anything's gone. You know, a lighting cue is one second late. She knows it because my arm, my hand tightens on her arm. But no, I, look, opening nights are actually quite interesting for me because it tends to be the first time that I see a show as a member of the audience when I'm not sitting there. And this is where, this is where I can't... I can't stop being a stage manager because even as a producer I sit with my notebook right up to the final dress rehearsal and, and take notes, which I will then quietly give to the director for him to, to take, him or her to take or not take. Um, and, you know, it's technical notes. Um, so on opening night, I actually don't do any of those things. I actually watch it as a member of the audience. Sometimes it's quite different. Sometimes it's very enjoyable. <laughs> Do you attend every opening night around the, the regions of, no. your, of your shows? No. Right. I try to. What I, well, no, I can't because it's, it's just, it takes up. Look, the next show I'm doing, I probably will because I'm only doing one show. But, um, you know, when I was running a company which was doing five or six productions a year, once you've got one open, you've then got to move straight on to the next one. What I do, however... Uh, um, as a matter of routine, I go to three or four of the productions of, while it, of the performances while it's on the road, and I try to go to different venues. So it ends up there probably isn't a venue in Australia that I haven't been to unless it's opened in the last couple of years. Wonderful. Mm. Your practical theatre knowledge was utilised by Nimrod uh, when they transformed the tomato sauce factory into what is now the Belvoir Street Theatre. That must have been a very uh, a challenging but a very exciting time. Oh, fantastic. Turning that, that space yes. into yes. the theatre we now know and love. Yes, it was, it was fantastic. So that was the days of John and Richard and, and uh, Ken Haller. John, John Bell, Richard were at Ken Haller, were the directors of that theatre. They, of course, had been at the, at the uh, stables. It was called the Nimrod in Nimrod Street, hence the name. Um, and then moved into the Fountain Tomato Sauce Factory and uh, and Larry Eastwood was was there and Larry Eastwood and Jake Newby who was the business manager and I were often seen with sledgehammers knocking bits of walls out to make windows and things but it was it was fantastic yeah yeah I glued a lot of the original sets I glued a lot of those cushions down to the benches and then I did the same at the um, not quite to that extent but the wharf I also was the uh, oh. was the uh, design consultant on the, the theater design consultant on the wharf with David Churches and and um, Andrew Andrews and the, um, the government architect so I was so I, I mean I, I until its recent renovation I would go into the wharf and think oh this is mine but now I don't I hardly recognize it anymore it's had such a wonderful facelift yeah yeah mm. very much so mm. Um, walking into that foyer at Belvoir Street also, it's lovely to see that, that board of, of names of artists and creatives from mm. the period yes. who all contributed yes. to, um, to the development of, yes. of that theatre yes. space. Yeah. Yes, and bought a share. Yeah. You know, it's literally saved it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's the, the wonder of the theatre community again, That's demonstrated right. there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Sue Hill and, and uh, Chris Westwood were responsible for that, yeah. for that great, great drive. Mm. Mm. Do you think any space can be turned into a, a theatre? Um, as long as the acoustic is right, because right. it's very hard to correct an acoustic. And if you look at the at the fifty five seat um, little theatre down in the old Fitz Hotel at Willamaloo, it's a fantastic acoustic. Yeah, yeah. But not every not every room is, and I think it's, 
I think it's very important. You know, I think theatre and food and wine go very well together, and I think I love that bar, that, that foyer at the Nimrod, where, at the Belvoir, where there is the bar, and it's a, it's, a, it's a natural meeting place, that bar, isn't it? You come out from the downstairs theatre, you come down from the upstairs theatre, or indeed you come in from the street, and you can have a drink at the bar, and it's just, it's hard to move without having a drink. It's hard to move through it. There are other theatres that are that are not like that. I mean, the wharf is, in a way, because it naturally hauls you to that glorious view of the harbour. So it's easy to go to the, to the bar for a drink afterwards. But there are a lot of theatres that don't recognise that and don't utilise their bar areas. In fact, there are far too many theatres, in my opinion, that close the bar mm. after interval. And I think it's just awful to walk out into an empty foyer after a triumphant show or a great experience where you just want to talk debrief and yeah. talk about yeah. it. And you can't because it's... You know, the front of house staff are looking at their watches and waiting to lock up. And I, I think it's a great shame that, that bars aren't open after the show. And I think it's just a, a really lovely way for an audience to finish an evening. I agree. I agree. So away from the theatre, what, what makes you happy? What, what fulfills you and, and satisfies you? I love travel. Yeah. Um, and I, I can travel more now that I'm not working full time. Um, I love, I have a partner who is the most marvellous gardener. And so I love sitting in her gardens. <laughs> I'm very good at helping her with them. And I love to cook. So I'm, you know, I live a, I lead a pretty full life, really. And I and I, I do love to go to the theatre and I love music too. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for this conversation, Christine Dunstan. It's it's been a little while in the uh, in the waiting, in the wings, but we finally got there. We did. Thank you, Peter, very much. Yeah. Um, you've been on my wish list from, from day one, so I'm, I'm so glad that well, we I'm, could uh, capture I'm your story. Delighted to have to have shared some of it with you. Thank you. Yeah. Have a lovely Christmas and uh, all the best for 2023. Right back at you, Pete. Thanks. Christine has contributed so many ways to the quality and quantity of engaging theatrical fare throughout Australia and stages afar. It was an absolute delight to record some of her experiences in this conversation on stages. My guest today, Christine Dunstan. I know you've been enthralled by this conversation, just like you are delighted by those listened to earlier. So why not give the podcast a review and rating? You can do so by scrolling to the bottom of the episode page in the iTunes podcast directory. You've got a choice of five stars and an opportunity to leave a brief comment. We'd really appreciate it. It helps the podcast reach a wider listening audience. You can also check out the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.